regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form and in-depth conversation with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Kashish Gupta, the father and co-CEO of Hightouch, a data startup based out of San Francisco. He grew up in Atlanta, loved playing racket sports, and always wanted to be an inventor when he grew up. He studied machine learning in college and had a short stint at a VC firm called Bessemer Venture Partners, and ever since graduating, has been working on startups. He and his co-founders are on their fifth business idea and have finally found product market fit. So Kashish, uh, glad to have you on the show. Hey, thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Fabulous. By way of introduction, I believe that you were originally from Atlanta and you actually went to high school that specialized in mathematics, science, and technology. So can you share briefly about your upbringing alongside some of your early interest in these STEM subjects? Yeah, I definitely credit a lot of who I am to the high school that I went to. I always say it's probably like the best free public education that you could ever receive and better than probably any private school you could attend. So I went to the school called the Gwinnett School of Math, Science and Technology, and it was started in 2007. So it's pretty new. And I joined in like 2010. So it was like a very new school that didn't really have any stats, but the whole focus was around STEM subjects. And so like me, like growing up, I always wanted to study science. And so it was like a no brainer to join that school. But over time, like that school got ranked like the second hardest school in the U.S. and like a lot of other things. So like it really did turn out to be something that shaped me. But like the part that was most important there is it really taught me about how to like rather than be results oriented, think about the process and like think about learning. Like the students there really had a passion for learning rather than just achieving like getting into school, a college, or getting certain grades. They really wanted to learn and build things with their knowledge. And so that was kind of instilled in me at a young age. I see. How did you get an interest in science? Do you credit that for where you grew up or in addition to school? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually never really figured out why I became interested in science. Um, I think it was just like the subjects I was good at and interested in like early on in my life. My dad also like has always worked with computers. So that made it a bit easy to get into like engineering. During that time frame, like really like I thought I wanted to be a mechanical engineer and wanted to work with my hands. So that obviously changed over time, but it was my like intro into the world of engineering. Thanks for sharing the story. Now for college, you moved to Philadelphia and you went to water school at UPenn to study economics, management, computer science. So my question is twofold. How would you describe your overall academic experience at UPenn? And, and secondly, what were some of your favorite undergrad courses that you took? Yeah, so the good thing or the bad thing about Penn is that people are very professional so Penn is really meant to be a school that doesn't teach you theory it teaches you how to like do things in the real world 
So for me, like I started off learning business and I thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur and like learn how to start a business at Wharton. But it turns out that Wharton doesn't really teach you how to start a startup. Their version of business is really meant for like Fortune 500. And so it's a very different type of mentality than like startup mentality. So after about a year of taking Wharton classes, I more or less stopped taking Wharton classes and started taking only classes in the engineering school because I thought they were much more interesting, intellectually stimulating, and also just like in the realm of startups. Because like if you learn computer science, then you can build anything. And if you can build anything, you can start anything. During my undergrad, like I was kind of dual majoring in business and computer science but always had much more of an interest in the computer science side. And mm-hmm. I'm glad that I found computer science while I was at Penn because like growing up, my dad worked in IT. So it was like impossible for him to suggest that I should go into IT because like it's kind of terrible to be in IT. And so he always told me like, you don't want to be in computers. It's the back office. It's not really the best part of a company. You should be in the front office. Like you should be in something like sales or finance or something that like people respect. And so he always told me that you shouldn't do computers, but After going to college, I learned what real computer science was and that it wasn't like IT or computer engineering. It was like actually like software development, coding, that kind of stuff. And really like what tipped me over was when I went to Penn Apps for the first time, which is like the world's largest hackathon. And I saw what people are doing with computer science and and it was clearly like some of the most fun stuff you could do. I see. Penn Apps, is that like a hackathon? Yeah, Penn Apps is a hackathon. It's supposedly the, the biggest hackathon in terms of number of people in the world. And the first time I went was 2014 fall. So during my freshman year of college. And that's when I like really learned about like how much fun coding could be. Up until then, like people were primarily thinking of coding as HTML, CSS, Um, especially in Atlanta. Like when you think about like coding, you think about either building websites or programming robots or like something that is like a little bit more low level, like C, C++. It's not really like web app development, iOS development, like not really like the fun stuff. I see. You see more like the applied side of computer science and what you learn in school can manifest itself into like kind of Yeah, exactly. And seeing people like develop end-to-end apps rather than scripts and like just hack them together so quickly. Um, it's kind of inspirational, right? Because then it shows you that like pretty much anything you imagine, you can put onto paper and then suddenly now you have an app that does what you like imagine in your head. And so that's like pretty empowering, but I wouldn't really have discovered it if I hadn't been around my peers you know, in Philadelphia. I see. Yeah. Continuing on that thread about your interest in CS, in the later part of your time at UPenn, you also completed a MSc degree that specialized in robotics. What were some of your like favorite classes and projects that you work on for this degree? Yeah. For the robotics degree, I actually took like majority computer science classes and only one robotics class. But out of those, like, I think I really enjoyed databases. Like, I'm basically like, I would say I'm not the best developer, um, especially compared to my co-founders. But what I can do is I can understand databases pretty well. And like my fundamental thinking is that if you understand a database, then you can pretty much understand the entire architecture of an app or an application because mm. the database kind of informs the rest of the application. And so like, if you understand, let's say like the ER diagram or the scheme of the database, then pretty much everything else in the application follows from there. Like you can understand the user structure, the account structure, the resources structure, like everything. And so like that was really like what clicked for me and helped me understand like everything across the rest of my computer science classes. So it's kind of a boring answer because database is like not like the most fun class, but that definitely contributed the most to my understanding of, of like computer systems. And then 
Other ones I really liked, like I took a brain computer interfaces class where we were basically taking real data from human implants and turning that into like machine learning insights. I basically studied like machine learning in college. Like I didn't really study robotics. I didn't really do like full skill computer science, but I really studied machine learning. And so like BCI was a really interesting class. I took a class on natural language processing, which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I would say like out of those, the most interesting class in the machine learning ones was a computer vision class I took. Mm-hmm. And like we were really learning the fundamentals of computer science. So like we would take like some image and use like vectorized code to then turn that into a set of discretized variables that a computer can then analyze and turn into some prediction. So for example, like we might want to do like chamfer edge detection and detect like what type of shape is in an image. Like, so you would take like canny edge detection and then do like chamfer and then find out what the image was or like what the shape was between a set of like four or five shapes. So those are the kinds of projects I really enjoyed because I felt like I understood the fundamentals of how machine learning works and how you turn something with too many data inputs into like a more discretized input variable for like a convolutional neural net. So I think I probably felt like I learned the most in those types of classes right. and had the most fun in those types of classes as well. Yeah, thanks for sharing those sensors, the importance of databases and as well as some of the projects that work on for your, for your degree. And I think like, you know, having that exposure to the more concrete scientific technical Causes definitely allow you to be crowded and kind of understand, you know, the state of this field as you're like working on your, on your company right now and and then relate a lot with the engineers and, and the scientists who might collaborate with my visual clients, right? Mm-hmm. Now, during your undergrad, besides academics, you also took part in a variety of internships, data science at IPG, investment analysis at Trilai, and then product management at Linked. What were some of the valuable lessons that you have learned from completing these internships? Yeah, I think my lessons were probably a lot more soft skills. So I would say like, yeah, I worked at a healthcare startup. I worked at a hedge fund in Hong Kong. And then I worked at a small tech startup in Hong Kong. So like amongst those internships, the majority of my learnings were actually like softer skills. So for example, at the hedge fund, my boss told me in my first week, he was like, look, you tell me what you want out of this internship and I will make that happen. And if you don't ask for anything, then I won't do anything. And you actually won't get anything out of this. So like I learned pretty early on that like if you want something, you should ask for it. And that when you go into something like an internship, you should have an intention at the forefront. So that intention could be to meet people, to make friends, to find mentors, to learn something new. It doesn't have to be to contribute something meaningful necessarily to the company that you work for. Obviously, that would be a, still be a great outcome. But like it should be something where you're like, this is what I want to get out of it. And like you can kind of approach a lot of things in your life that way. Mm-hmm. Um, another one was like, for example, like I lived in New York for another internship and it makes you think that like what I have is never enough, right? Because you see people in New York, they always have more money than you. They always look better than you. They always like are cooler than you. And you're always like, wow, like this person is so far above me, like above where I am in life. And so one time me and my friend, my coworker were on the rooftop of the building that we were on uh, that we're working in. And we were like, wow, this rooftop is beautiful. Like this is like, just like the most amazing view that we've ever seen. But at the same time, there's all these other rooftops that are just a bit higher than the one that we're on. And like, we're on this rooftop, it's an amazing view. And yet we can't stop thinking about how there's other rooftops higher than us and how we want to be on those ones. And so that's like the moment that I clicked that I'm like, it's never going to end. Like high school is a race. You're like racing to get into the best college. Then college is a race. You're racing to get the best job. 
And then every single job you do is a race where you're just racing to get promoted or racing to get to the next step and the next step. And you keep wanting to go to like higher rooftops. But in the end of the day, like it doesn't really matter how you compare yourself relatively to other people because there's always going to be people that are like better off than you and have more privilege than you. Mm -hmm. um, it's really only useful to compare yourself to where you used to be. And for me, like there has been like a monumental change in like where I was growing up and where I am now. Like right. I grew up in a pretty average family. My family's income was like significantly far below like the median income at other students at, for other students at Penn. And like this kind of stuff is pretty meaningful because if you don't realize that the race is not important, then you'll just keep racing forever and not really like think about what you want to do. Mm -hmm. So I think th like those were like some of like, the most important learnings. I definitely learned how to work with others and like learned how to collaborate on teams, have a manager, like be a manager, that kind of stuff. But I was pretty lucky that I only worked for really small teams. So I've never worked for a big corporation. And this is like actually one of the biases I have that I'm trying to like actively learn about, which is that like I've only worked at companies that are like 40 people or less. And oftentimes they're just like 10 or 20 people. And so I've never really like seen what like a normal corporate structure looks like, what like manager one-on-ones look like, what like HR structures look like and that kind of stuff. And so it really biases me to like only understand how startups work. Mm -hmm. And that means that like sometimes like employees will join and they'll kind of have like questions of like, all right, how often can I schedule a call with you? Like, should I message you versus just call you right away? And they have these like more like tactical questions that I've never thought about. And so I'm like actively trying to learn like how like people from bigger companies think about working at startups because people always say that like high touch kind of works in a very unique way where like people talk to each other very freely. They work pretty fast. They ship pretty fast and they're not used to it. And to me, it's just normal because I've only seen people work this fast and like, like work this closely. So I'm just trying to like get the context for where other people are coming from. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those lesson thing. It sounds like you figure out not sticking into the treadmill of climbing the ladder right early on during college, not like afterwards. So you figure out what is like a meaningful career might look like without falling the hurt. And I'm sure like at Penn, there might be a pressure to maybe go into more traditional career, like investment banking or finance or things like that. It sounds like you step out of that hurdle and identify what's good for you right away and what might be meaningful, right? And we'll talk more about it in some of the later questions, but I just want to raise that point as, as we end this topic. Yeah, definitely. I think you're right that when you go to Penn, like it's pretty easy to get drawn into working for like an industry like finance or consulting because there's just so much money to be made in those industries, right? But I think I can't give myself all the credit. It really is because I was pretty lucky and I found a pretty solid internship for my junior year. And so what happened basically is like I was recruiting my junior year in November. I got an internship at Bessemer Venture Partners and I always thought I wanted to be a VC, right? So at that point I was like, wow, like Now that I have the internship I always wanted, um, what else can I do for the next year and a half that like allows me to do something even more interesting than venture capital? Mm -hmm. um, and there, I had nothing against venture capital at that point. I thought I would really like it. But I basically had a year and a half where I could achieve anything else I wanted. And like the best thing after venture capital to me was like startups and like actually being an engineer and learning like how to be like a proper engineer. Like before I was going to get a minor in computer science. And I was like, you know what? Like now that I have a year and a half where I can just like not care about my grades and really focus on learning, I can get a master's. I can get B's and C's in my classes. If I have to, it's not a big deal. And like really just focus on learning. So if I had not found like a job I really liked early on, then I probably would have kept searching 
for like the right job after school, right? But because I had found it, I was just like, now all I really care about is learning how to be a good engineer mm-hmm. and then like eventually learning how to start a company. And if I can learn those two things, then I'm pretty much good for the next two years. And I'm not going to spend any more time thinking about jobs. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. So it opened up like kind of remove that mental barriers of like exactly. searching for a job and you free up more time for learning, right? Yeah. I'll share yeah. one more learning. Like I actually mm-hmm. learned this from a friend I made in Mexico City. Um, I was traveling there one summer after my internship just because I really wanted to get out of like the bubble that I was in. And like, it was actually monumental. Like I met a friend and what she told me is that like she was going to the number one university in Mexico for engineering. So it was basically the MIT of, of Mexico. And like her tip for me was that no matter what she does, she's going to become successful. And this was mind blowing to me because like, I had never thought about the world as that in, in that way that basically like, there's nothing that you can do to completely screw up. And she was like, yeah, like what's going to happen? Like, let's say I don't get a job out of school. Let's say I graduate in like six years instead of four. It doesn't really make a difference. Ultimately, I'm going to graduate from the MIT of Mexico. And ultimately I'm going to be considered one of the best engineers in my country. And I'm still going to do really, really well for the rest of my life. And there's no way to not do well other than get arrested. And as long as I just don't get arrested, I will like do pretty well as a base case. And so I'm focused on finding what I really love and like what I want to do and like, what is my passion? Because the base case is you can do really well. And right. she was like, don't you feel the same way? Like you go to the number one business school in the US. And I was like, no, I've never felt that way in my life. But like, this is a really great perspective because now I can actually think of the world that way that like up until that point, I really thought like I didn't have privilege. Um, but she made me realize that like going to a good school and like having the privilege that I did means that I should figure out what is meaningful to me, what is it, what I'm passionate about rather than like working a job because I had the privilege to think about that kind of stuff, which my parents didn't have that privilege and a lot of people don't have that privilege. Almost coming from a abundance mindset. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is not normal for me, but I'm trying to get used to it. Just got a double clicking on your time at BVP, right? So you spent a summer there at the New York office investing in early stage deep tech company. You talk a little bit about some of the more software side skill skills that you learned, but uh, what were some of the key insights about venture capital that you absorbed from the experience of working there? Yeah, so um, as an analyst at Best Member Venture Partners, like your primary job is to source deals, talk to founders and CEOs, learn about their business, and then pitch the VC partners on whether they want to invest. So you're really selling two sides. You're selling the founder on taking money from the firm. And then you're selling the partner at the firm on investing on the founder. And that matchmaking process is pretty difficult because like in the end of the day, partners will want to invest in what they want to invest in. So you're actually much better off finding companies and industries and spaces that they're already interested in. So some of the learnings I had was like, really like, to be honest, venture capital is a game. There are certain things that like VCs want to hear. And like if founders were taught to say those things, they would be much more successful at raising and much more successful at raising quickly. So for example, like the concept of recurring revenue, the concept of um, retention, the concept of bottoms up growth, there's just like very clear like business models that people like. And for example, like when I first started a business, like we were doing like a B2C travel company and like I changed it to a B2B travel company and immediately investors became much more interested because like investors want to see how can you grow quickly And B2B is usually a really good path to grow quickly in number of users. So like, there's all these things that like you can kind of do as a founder to game the venture capital system and like pitch your company in a certain way that attracts investors. Um, I think I only worked there for three months, so it was like a very short amount of time, but right. I did learn a lot of those patterns. 
that like, what does a founder say that like investors like, and what does a founder say that is a complete red flag to investors? So that was interesting. And then like overall, like my like core thing at Bessemer was like to do like machine learning, like AI investments. So like, it was pretty cool to be able to work on like something where like I actually had like more domain expertise than most people because like people would like bring me in and like actually trust me on doing like diligence on companies. So like a lot of self-driving car companies and like voice transcription companies I would look at and like looking back, um, some of the decisions I made were actually like solid not to invest. And then some of the decisions I made to invest would have also been pretty bad. So like, there's really no answer for like being a good investor or bad investor. I think people are right that like you make like multiple bets and then some are good, some are not good. Mm. But for me, like it was amazing. Like the reason I wanted to be a VC is because I wanted to be exposed to the most number of ideas and startups as possible, um, as quickly as possible. And then also just to see patterns and like what makes companies successful. And so I think I got both of those two things out of being a VC, but my heart wasn't really in it long-term because I felt like if I wanted to invest, I wanted to invest my own money and have like full control of the process rather than working at a fund. I see. Yeah. I'm curious, like from like a father and operator perspective, what are some of the common you know, misconceptions that they have about VC? I mean, it depends on the early stage versus the later stage. A lot of founders have this mentality that like in the end of the day, like, all VCs are just giving you money and there's not that much more that you need to think about past that. Um, I don't completely agree. I think like having a really good VC can be really helpful and then having a really bad VC can be like really hurtful, right? Because like a really bad VC could push you out of your own company and they could force you to make decisions that you don't want to make. So like what I would really say is that like when you're calibrating on choosing a VC for like to take money from, you should calibrate on trust rather than on like more surface level things like, oh, they can introduce you to this one customer or, oh, they can like, Um, help you like make this one specific hire those are kind of like temporary things like people often help with like very specific things in the first few months of making an investment but then you're with this person for the next like four or five years which could be like the life cycle of your company and during that time like you really want someone that gives you the benefit of the doubt and trusts you to make decisions and like supports you in those decisions so for example if me tatis and josh are like hey we want to launch a new product and our board says no this is a waste of time you guys should not launch this new product we should focus on the current product Now we're at a standstill and we don't know what to do. And they didn't trust us in like saying that we need to launch this new product in order to grow our market size. So that's like a really classic example. But I think having people you really trust around you means that you'll never have to worry about the wrong things. Like you won't have to worry about revenue too early. You won't have to worry about churn too early. You'll really get to focus on like the right goals. So I think that's probably my biggest learning having worked with a few different VCs for high touch. Yeah, really focused on it's more relationship based rather than exactly quality transactional. Yeah, we'll talk about some of these threats later on, talking about fundraising for high touch, but it's kind of circling back to end your time in college. You mentioned a bit earlier that you already become interested in founding companies and startup when you go to UPenn. And I was doing research on your profile and some fun facts that you were engaged in a couple of like side hustle. So at Atlanta, you create this initiative called Small World Learning which provides scalable lesson plans to make learning more intuitive and interactive. And then during your time at Philly, you create Mama's Cooking, which is an app for students to buy and sell home-cooked meals. What were some of the things that you learned just from exercising some of this entrepreneurial muscle at a young age? Yeah, mostly just learn how hard it was. So I would say like I had like maybe like three-ish ventures I tried to do like during high school and college. During that time, like you learn that like nothing is easy and that like this whole like concept of like 
overnight success just doesn't really exist. You learn how to just like reach out to more people than you feel comfortable reaching out to. And like being able to ask adults for help is a really good skill at a young age because when you're young, everyone is down to help you. Like at our age, it's a bit different now. Now we're adults. Like people will think of us as like, okay, like why is this person reaching out to me? But when you're in high school or college, pretty much anyone you reach out to will be like, oh my God, this person is so young. Let me go help them. So like, that's the kind of stuff I learned. Mama's Cooking was an interesting one. It was an app that is literally like Chef. Like if you've heard of the app, like um, S-H-E-F, where basically like people that are home cooks, cook food at home, and then they deliver that food to you in like the city nearby. It's basically, it's like home cooked food delivery app. So I started that in college and it did not work at all because at the time, Philadelphia food safety law did not allow people to buy food from others. Um, you could give food for it to each other for free, but you couldn't sell it to each other unless it was cooked in a food safe kitchen. And like just in 2020, I think, or 2019, I think 2020, that law was changed for a few different states. And so that's what allows this business model to work. But basically, like, I think a lot of people have started a food delivery app that's like home cooked foods. And like in that process, like I built an iOS app, I got like a lot of initial customers that were kind of just like creating this marketplace for me, where like every Sunday, I would have like five people cook, and then like find, find 25 people to buy their meals. And that's how I created the marketplace. But like, one of the cool things I learned was like, if you do a marketplace 24 seven every day, it's pretty hard to make that marketplace clear because you don't have enough demand or supply. But like, if you just say, oh, this is a Sunday only app, it's only for Sundays. And I only need to get five people to do like the cooking side. Then you can artificially create supply one day a week. Then it's much easier to solve for demand because you've already artificially created the supply. So that principle helped a lot, like in my first couple of startup ideas when we were doing like a travel company. But like, I think like, doing a startup in college when you don't really need it to work and you're just like trying to learn um, mm. is very different compared to when it's like existential and it's like your full-time job and this is kind of like if this doesn't work i'm not gonna like have any income for the next year yeah thanks for sharing the context on this experience now after graduating from upenn you um, decided to move to san francisco in fact you wrote a blog post that explained your decision to move here with our job and with our home Would you mind walking the listeners through your rationale for making this decision? So I graduated. Instead of taking like a return offer from Bessemer, I asked them if I could take an offer one year later. So they gave me a deferred offer for one year. That way I could like spend a year exploring and doing whatever I want and then join them one year after graduation. So during that time, I was like, I'm not going to spend any time looking for a job. I'm just going to spend time learning, taking computer science classes, and then like enjoying my last few months of college. And so at the point when I graduated, I had, didn't have like any jobs, right? So I was just like a graduate and I was exposed to figure out what to do for the next year, which definitely did not make my parents too happy. But basically what I wanted to do was I wanted to move to San Francisco and find a software engineering job. And at the time I was like searching for one in Atlanta and it was pretty difficult because it was pretty difficult to get introduced to companies from so far away. And so like after um, like, like a few weeks or like a month or so of searching remotely, um, I said, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to move to SF. Um, I'm going to couch surf and then meet people and like use that as a way to like get into companies, especially startups, hopefully. Mm. And so I just moved to SF. didn't have like, I was just going to couch surf with some friends. Like I had like a few different couch surfs lined up for like a few days at a time. And then I had a few job interviews lined up as well. So that's how I flew out and like just moved to SF. And my parents were pretty scared of it because they were like, you're not going to have like anywhere to live or any money. But like, to me, it was like way better than like being in Atlanta and being at home. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just took that leap of faith. And like, throughout that process, 
didn't end up finding a job in software engineering. The thing was that like I was looking for a machine learning job and a lot of the machine learning jobs are either looking for like people that are like more software developers or looking for people that are more like PhD level. Mm-hmm. And I was not really either of those two. So I ended up doing like several interviews, not really finding anything that was a good fit. And then during that time, like pitching a few different people on this travel company that I had like stuck in my head that I wanted to start. And like the, the reason like I didn't want to like start a company like right out of college is because I actually really wanted to learn how software engineering teams work. I wanted to be a software engineering first before like, be, like actually being a startup founder. Um, and I thought that was like a much better like learning curve for me. But like what ended up happening is that during that time, I had this nagging idea in my head that like this travel company could actually be a really good idea and a limited time opportunity. So I was like talking to people about it. And like every startup founder I talked to about it was like, this is awesome. I would be your user. Like all my employees should use this kind of product to book their travel. And so I ended up just starting that company um, and like let go of the job search because like I kind of found the first three or four companies that would be my end users. I see. Let's talk about that company, just travel company that you're working on, right? So I found out about it after taking a look at the lunch on Product Hunt. So this oh, yeah. is Carrie, and uh, the description is an executive assistant for travel on Slack. And you co-founded this with your friend, Tejash Manoha, this boy, right? First of all, why did you decide to work on you know, an app for travel? And yeah, then- so I definitely mm-hmm. did not want to be a travel founder. I think like travel is like a really t- hard industry to be in. And that's why I was actually actively avoiding starting this company because I thought like being a travel founder would be a very difficult and like hard journey where like I would never really like start a business that would make any money. Ultimately, what pushed me in that direction is that there was like a really good and like strong customer demand for the product. So what it was is Carrie was basically a Slack bot that people would install in their Slack workspace. And it would book all your company travel for you. So instead of having like EAs book travel at your company, um, you would just message Carrie in Slack and Carrie would just give you flights and hotels and rental cars and book all of them for you end to end on the corporate card. So it was like a beautiful UX. Like people really, really like the product. To this day, people still message us asking if they can use this product because like how good the UX was. At the time, it was not automated at all. It was like real human beings in the back end booking travel for you, but they were kind of trained to be like a really good user experience. And in the beginning, it was just us. It was just like me and Tejas and Ernest, our first hire, um, okay. doing all the travel bookings for our customers. So I started Carry like, what was it? Like probably call it um, October of 2018. Right. And worked on it for about like seven or eight months before we raised any money and before Tejas joined. And that period was like very slow. It was like one of the biggest learnings during that period were like our core value prop. And that core value prop was that we were able to find travel agency rates that we could give to people over Slack. So like traditionally how the travel world works is you have online rates and they're a little bit more expensive than travel agency rates. And that's how travel agencies make money because they give you better rates, um, but they only give you those rates over the phone. And that gives them a leg up compared to like online travel resellers. And so I called a bunch of travel agencies, like 20, 30 of them, and found this guy named Chris Morse, who worked with me to help me start my own travel agency which was like an automated um, online travel agency. And mm-hmm. through him, I was able to get access to these like unpublishable rates where they were like sometimes up to like 20, 30% off of airfare. Like we were saving sometimes people like $1,000 on their airfare. And that was kind of like the core value problem that if you use our travel assistant, then you can actually book travel cheaper than if you buy your own travel. And like we were trying to figure out different ways to scale that out. The only thing we couldn't do was create a web app because then it would be like an online rate. But as long as you do it over Slack, over text message, 
over like later on we did a Chrome extension. There was all these different ways you could get around the industry unpublishable fare and make it so that like consumers can now have access to these fares. So I think that's still an interesting business. I think someone will still do something really cool there where they'll make these travel agency rates available to the general public through some sort of private application. Um, and so that was really like why we had a lot of conviction in the business because we knew that like we'll always have this like arbitrage in rates where we can either save people money or we can make money on the delta of the rates. I see. Started on October 2018 for about six, seven months. So it's just three of you, right? Yeah. So um, 2019 is when re- things really started picking up for the travel business. Mm-hmm. Um, we raised a pre-seed in May and then got into YC shortly after. Yeah. Um, the pre-seed was about 600K. It was a pretty small round. And then we got into YC. That's around the time when like the team grew to like me, Tejas, and Ernest. And then we kind of hit the ground running in YC with us three plus two other employees that were helping us on the travel side mm-hmm. um, and helping us like book the travel. So it was like a five-person team. We did YC with that five-person team and really grew the user base. Like we grew from like maybe like call it like 20, 30, 40 users into a few hundred users that were booking travel pretty regularly through carry travel. And uh, we grew from like at the start of YC, we had maybe, maybe like $5,000 in travel bookings per week and grew that to about like $40,000 in travel bookings per week up to the point where we were doing like almost $150,000 or $200,000 in travel per month, mm-hmm. which was an accounting nightmare. But basically we would book all the travel for our clients and then get reimbursed for that travel on Stripe via their credit cards. It was a truly a marketplace business. Like we were truly like plugged into like the traditional travel agency systems that would give us access to like unpublished rates. And we were running it like a tech company where we would call our travel bookings and like travel GMV. We would call those like recurring revenue. And this is why it was like really tricky, right? Because like travel bookings are not recurring revenue. They're like, no one's obligated to keep booking travel. And as you can imagine with COVID, they completely stopped, right? But in the corporate travel world, you can actually call travel recurring because companies are spending month over month, the pretty much the exact same amount on travel or more pre-COVID. And so what we said is like, look, like we're doing 200K of travel per month. Our cut is like, let's say 10%. And so we're making 20K a month. And that's our annual recurring revenue. And that was like one of those things that was kind of tricky where it was like, is this really ARR? Not really, but can we kind of count it like ARR? Yes, because like we, th- we think that travel is stable enough to be considered recurring. And obviously we were totally wrong about that during COVID. There people completely stopped traveling. But at the time, like investors were convinced that, yeah, we should count this as recurring because businesses travel pretty stably. Yeah, I see. Can you also talk more about George Spurn going through YC? I guess, like, what are some of the most surprising things that, you know, you and your friends learn from being part of that experience? Yeah, YC is a great forcing function for growth. So, like, I always say, like, there's only, like, two reasons why someone should want to do YC. And, like, I, I wouldn't say that we squarely fit into these two reasons. But, like, in the end of the day, like, hindsight is 2020, right? So, like, we did YC. We got, like, a good amount out of it. And I think, like, it will always be part of our startup journey. But for us, like, I think like, there's two reasons people should do YC. One is because you need help fundraising. And two is because you need help breaking into, like, the Bay Area ecosystem. So, if you're a founder outside of the Bay Area, I think it's a really, really strong way to break into the Bay Area ecosystem and have a network here. So I would recommend it for those founders. And I would also recommend it for founders that like don't have a lot of connections to VCs. Um, at the time, like I had already been meeting VCs for like several months. Then Tejas had also already been knowing VCs for many years. 
mm-hmm. uh, because he'd been in the Bay Area. So we didn't really need YC as a way of meeting venture capitalists. Like we just really thought of YC as a way of meeting our potential customers because other YC startups were a great candidate for using Carity. The reasons why we should like be part of YC is really like fundraising. That's the number one. And then making a network in the Bay Area, that's number two. We didn't fit into those two categories. We made a third reason for ourselves, which is just that like, if your end user is YC startups, then it's going to be a really good bootstrapped way to grow quickly, which did work for us. Like we grew within the YC startup community pretty quickly. And so that was what like helped us raise a seed round after YC and like also like just get to our next stage of growth. So no regrets, but I definitely like stand by like fundraising being the number one reason why founders do YC. Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those insider perspective. Since earlier 2020, alongside Tejash and Josh Kerr, you have been the co-founder of HighTouch, which is a data platform that's in customer data from data warehouse to CRM, marketing, and support tools. So can you share the, the story behind the founding of the company? Yeah. So um, in 2020, we were working on the travel company. And at that point, we had already wanted to pivot. We were already looking for new ideas outside of travel because we didn't think travel was a really sustainable business. Um, but then COVID happened. And as a result, people completely stopped traveling. And we were a six-person team at this time. And so we had to make a hard decision of saying, like, look, let's completely stop working on the travel business. Let's look for new ideas. We think this COVID thing is going to last for much longer than people realize. It's going to be at least a year or two. And during that much time, if like we're in the travel business, we're actually really losing out because no one can be traveling for the next year or two. So we shut down the travel business. We had to lay off a couple of employees and we gave them really good severance. Um, and then we were completely like starting from scratch on like new ideas. So at the time, like Tejas and I were working on something like related to Slack and customer success. And that's around the time where like Josh, who's our housemate, was also pivoting his business in the IoT space. And so we basically like all three of us were living together. All three of us were pivoting. And we said, hey, what if we just combine businesses and work on one together? And like, let's do something together in the customer success space or in the data space. So like what ended up happening is we kept the carry travel it was called Carry Technologies Inc. We kept the cap table and like all the legal and everything from that business. We didn't like return money to investors or anything. We just continued on because we had not spent a lot of our money. At that point, we had raised about $2.1 million and we had like $1.8 million left in the bank. So we were extremely, extremely frugal throughout the life cycle of that business and had most of the money left in the bank. So we said, it's like we're starting from scratch, but have already fundraised, which means that we'll be able to go much faster and like skip a lot of the ops work. We took the cap table, explored doing ideas and customer success. And each idea kind of led us to the next idea. So like we started high touch as a customer success business, realizing that actually customer success workflows are pretty competitive. There's a lot of people that are already doing customer success workflows, like Gainsight, Catalyst, Calixa. And we said, okay, what if we do instead aggregation of communications data? Because a customer success team oftentimes wants to know what did sales say to the customer? What did support say to the customer? What did solutions say to the customer? And they don't have a good view of all the different communications with the customer. So mm-hmm. then HighTouch became a platform for aggregating all the communications with the customer. Mm-hmm. We took that to market. Um, we had a lot of good like companies like take a look at it and say they were interested. But ultimately they said, this is cool and just not as important as our customer data. So they said, like, give me this customer comms thing so I can see all my customer comms in one place. But first, solve customer data for me. I want to know how many times my user is logging in or how many times my user is like requesting help or how many times my user is inviting new members to the workspace. And so we said, okay, cool, we can do that. Like we can totally bring in customer usage data into the same platform. 
So then we were centralizing customer comms and customer usage. And it really became like a, a data centralization platform. That was a dashboard. So it became a dashboard where you like just type in your customer's name, you look at them up, and then you have all information about your customer, whether it's comms or usage, all in one place. And we were using this thing called Powered by Fivetran to operate that product, where basically like we would use Fivetrans, all their SaaS connectors, and bring all that data into our database and serve it to the user in real time in the dashboard. And customers were like, yep, this is great. But then we had two types of customers. One were startups and they loved it. For them, this was like perfect. This is exactly what they wanted. And the second was like anyone like more than like 50 to 100 employees. And they were like, mm, we don't really need exactly what you're giving us. We already have a data warehouse. So why are you pulling all the data from my Salesforce and my Postgres and like all these other tools? Just pull it from my data warehouse because I've already done the job of centralizing and I already have my own five train subscription. So I shouldn't be paying twice for like the data centralization. Um, I've already done that. And so we made the decision of saying like, okay, like if every single company pretty much grows into having a data warehouse and centralizing data themselves, we should actually not focus on like the startup focused product. We should actually just build this for like mid-market where people, and assume that people have a data warehouse and that's like kind of like the prerequisite for using our product. So then we stopped using Powered by Fivetran. We used data warehouses and databases as our only sources and we shipped this data dashboard product and people liked that a lot. They're basically like, cool, this is like, a great view on top of my data warehouse. It feels kind of like a BI tool and I'm not really sure. So like, what are you guys doing that's new? And we realized what's new is like really like getting data in front of business users. And those business users are living in their own CRM of choice, whether it's Salesforce or Zendesk or Marketo. And so then we said, okay, instead of giving them the data in dashboard, let's give them the data directly in the tools that they use. And that's what became HighTouch really what, as it is today. It was a product for getting data from a data warehouse into anyone's SaaS tool of choice, but that really happened throughout this iterative process of showing customers our product, getting their feedback on it. And each time, like they really gave us our next pivot. Like we couldn't have really thought of those ideas from first principles without the feedback of those customers. And like oftentimes them just directly telling us, no, this doesn't make sense. Give me the data warehouse as a source. Or no, this doesn't make sense. Give me Salesforce as a destination rather than making your own dashboard. And it's good that we had like strong-minded customers like that, that really like showed us the way. Right. And like one last thing to mention there is like Tejas and Josh both worked early at Segment. And so that's where their background comes from. And like the product is not dissimilar from Segment's value prop, where like Segment's value prop is like basically like collecting data, storing it for you, and then sending it to all your SaaS tools, right? So we just do the third part of those. We just send it to all your SaaS tools. Um, but it's pretty different from Segment in that we're serving the data team. And that we're doing this in like um, a best of breed way rather than a full stack way. So like when we were doing user research and like understanding what our users want, it was pretty difficult for us to believe that Segment didn't already solve their problems because we had like basically assumed that Segment had already solved user problems and it was kind of like the end all be all for data activation. Mm -hmm. And what we learned from like a lot of different enterprises is that, yeah, Segment works up until a certain point and then it breaks because it's constrained on the data model. In Segment, you just have users and you have events on users and you don't really have a data model past users. And so what we realized is that like there are certain segments of the market where Segment doesn't work anymore. And like, for example, if you're using a data warehouse and that's your source of truth, that you don't actually want to use Segment as your source of truth because you already have Snowflake or BigQuery as your source of truth. And so like these like were like pretty hard and like important learnings for us to say like, okay, we have to let go of the Segment model, like the full stack model. And we have to now believe in this whole data warehouse model. But because so many of our users really did believe in that data warehouse model and pitched us on it, 
that's how we like ended up starting high touch which was that like we realized the data warehouse is actually going to be the kind of like infrastructure that replaces a, a lot of the SaaS tools that you use today like if you currently think of segment or like salesforce as your source of truth for data we realize that it's going to be something like snowflake or bigquery in the future yeah. and that no tooling is built on top of those i see i believe there's also a blog post on high touch website that distinguish the differences between segment and high touch yeah we sure to include that into the show notes so people can read more and go over in depth what Kashish just mentioned we'll talk more about some of the technical stuff related data this concept of reverse ETL and operational analytics in a second but I'm just curious from the initial ideas of you know customer success tooling all the way down to what considered high touch How long was it? I mean, you, obviously you mentioned like four or five different people today, but like, yeah, I'm curious, like what's the timeline that you guys are working on? And first of all, thanks for being super transparent about all these you know, different nuances up and down, of, you know, going over this different procedure of working on this project. Yeah, but good luck to kind of curious to hear the actual time frame and challenges that go to long way. Yeah. yeah. After you do a couple pivots, it gets really easy to do more and more pivots because you're no longer married to the idea that you're starting. So like the first couple of pivots like in travel took us a long time, right? Because we were like, oh man, like it's going to be like, we don't want to like get rid of our idea. We love our idea. And then the next few pivots were like super rapid fire because like, we kind of like expected there to be a pivot. We were just like, yeah, we're like very skeptical of ideas now. Like we actually are not married to any idea. So it took about like four months, I would say. Like I would say like within four months, we probably went through like maybe even three months. We went through four different ideas and landed on like high touch as it is today because we were way lower friction on changing our ideas. Activating that iterative muscle, accustomed to like changing your mindset quickly and really adapting to customer feedback. Right? Yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, I would say like in the beginning, like we were had the idea, like we had the focus of like, how do we make an idea work? And then as we did more and more pivots, it was more focused on like, how do we validate that this is a good or bad idea? Something that like, I would like urge like every founder to do is like, think about speed of disvalidation. Like figure out what you need to do to disvalidate your idea and like disvalidate it as fast as possible. Because like the worst case is that you like work on a startup for many, many years and then like it doesn't go anywhere. So you actually want to disvalidate as quickly as possible. Like you still want to be a believer. And then while you're a believer, disvalidate or like learn, like solve for those things quickly or like just get a pulse on those things and then make a decision for like whether you think it's a good business or not. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Emphasizing the part in the speed of execution. High Touch is building a category called operational analytics which is an approach to analytics that shifts the focus from simply understanding data to actually putting that data to work in the tools that run your business. Can you unpack this notion of operational analytics for the uninitiated? Yeah, so operational analytics to us is like, what it really should be is like operationalizing analytics. So people have all of their analytics and insights in some BI tool, right? And usually you'll say like, oh yeah, I have that in my looker or my metabase or my mode. And there's some BI team in my company that's gotten the analytics and they've done the queries and like done the analysis. So what operational analytics means is like turning that analysis or that analytics into actual action, taking action on analytics basically. So for example, like you might have a marketing team that calculated churn risk or like a BI team that calculated LTV, amount of dollars spent to acquire users and so on. And you might want to then run certain campaigns on users that are high risk of churn or are at high probability of purchasing. So like, let's say someone visits your website seven times, they download your ebook, and now they're about to download your iOS app. They visit the page three times. They're probably going to buy your product and you want to send them ads and you want to send them emails. 
that's kind of like a really good use case for taking BI data, giving it to marketers and letting them run re-engagement campaigns on it. But usually what happens is like analytics just gets stuck in the BI tool and it doesn't get operationalized. So like for us, like operational analytics is not doing analysis on your operations. It's taking analysis and then turning it into action. And like the beauty of it is that like, if we can achieve this, then like anyone, not just engineers will be able to take their analysis in their like data warehouse and turn it into a campaign or into like some sort of workflow or automation. So like really we want to turn like BI and analytics like into mm-hmm. automation that powers different workflows, whether they're marketing workflows customer success workflows, support workflows, or sales workflows. And like, those are really the four teams we serve right now. But like, we do things as like interesting as like automating the creation of Zendesk tickets. Like some companies, what they'll do is they'll say that as soon as someone removes their credit card from my database, create a Zendesk ticket asking our support person to reach out and ask that person to put their credit card back in. Because if they don't have a credit card, their transaction is going to bounce and then they're not going to pay. So like these kinds of automations, like they build with via high touch and like that data exists, it's always existed, but usually that data just didn't get in the hands of a support team. So it's really just powering these operational workflows more than anything else. Yeah. There's a very in-depth guy on high touch block that defining and discussing the benefits of operational analytics in more detail. I guess the one concept kind of summarizing what you said is using the analytics layer as a hub, not just as a spoke, right? essentially using warehouse as sort of the central for all the operational data workflows instead of creating end-to-end power connection between different tools. Yep. So that idea of like, you know, centralizing, providing the relationship between these workflows is what enables teams to leverage and capitalize on these numbers in a more efficient way. Let's dissect some of the key capabilities that are backed into the high-touch product. I think based on my research, the messaging being used on the website is high-touch is a market leading reverse ETL, which is the process of copying data from that warehouse to operational system record. First of all, why is there a need for a reverse ETL product in the market? And second of all, like how can high touch product fulfill that need? Yeah. So, I mean, reverse ETL is really a term that was created by our customers. At the end of the day, like ETL is ETL. It doesn't really like, there's no reverse of it, but it really helps people understand what we do, which is like, if you think of ETL as getting data into a warehouse, you can simply think of reverse ETL as getting data out of a warehouse. And like, uh, you're right that like this need didn't exist until warehouses were fast enough to power operational workflows. So like traditionally, you're always thinking about getting data into a warehouse because the warehouse is kind of like a big, slow, cheap place to store data and like back up all that data and then run analytics out of that data, right? But it wasn't an operational tool because it was far too slow to run queries. Those queries would take like three, four hours to run. So you usually run those overnight and get some dashboard in the morning that would show you like the metrics. And that's like what a data warehouse is known for. So now there's like a shift in users' minds. And the shift is like really, really recent. It's in the last like year, year and a half, where um, users are now saying, you know, my data warehouse is getting faster and faster thanks to companies like Snowflake and BigQuery. And I can actually power my workflows out of my data warehouse. Like I can, the same way I would use like a segment or like a production database, I can use my data warehouse in near real time, like something like five minute query runtime instead of five hour to power operational workflows. And that's why there's a need for reverse ETL because you already did the job of centralizing all your data. This is the first time you've had all your data from across your entire company in one place, whether it's SaaS tool data, database data, event data, everything. It's all in one place, Uh, marketing, sales, product data, engineering data, everything in one place that never existed before. And then the centralized source of that data never was fast enough to power operational workflows. But now that those two things happened, the very clear next step is how do we get this data out and make it useful? 
rather than letting it get stuck in those data warehouses. And so that's why reverse ETL makes sense as a product and why customers have really been like asking for it for like the past year. A lot of people build reverse ETL in-house. So think about it, right? Like what you'll do is your data team will get tasked with bringing data into something like Salesforce or bringing some data into something like Facebook ads. And what they'll do is they'll write a Python script that builds reverse ETL in-house and gets that data from some database or some data warehouse directly into their SaaS tool like Salesforce or Facebook ads. The only difference now is that we're providing a SaaS tool that's hosted and right out of the box to do that for companies so that data engineers don't have to do this integrations work themselves. And like the high-touch product is like a very simple product. It's really like a SQL UI that pulls data from any database that's like a SQL database or, C- or data warehouse. And then a mappings UI that sends that data over to the SaaS tool. So you'll simply map like the columns in your data warehouse to the columns in your SaaS tool. And we'll maintain those syncs by checking for the changes in data. So checking for the diffs, sending those diffs over to the end destination and making sure that like the data is successfully synced. And if not, we'll retry and we'll check for errors and that kind of stuff. So we do all the nice to haves, but fundamentally it is like a data syncing product. And then we have all these different types of like deepened integrations that are not just ETL. And that's why we don't really love reverse ETL as a product name, because we think it's a bit constraining. Like reverse ETL sounds like you're just really like copying a table from one data warehouse into a table in something like Salesforce. When the reality is that you can actually power a lot more interesting workflows than just ETL workflows. So you can do things like powering a Slack bot or creating Zendesk tickets or creating tasks in Salesforce or like creating projects in Asana and like assigning people to those projects. There's a lot of workflows that you can power reverse ETL. And so we want to kind of like talk to more users about like how they think about reverse ETL and bring more of these workflow type use cases into the category of reverse ETL over time. But it's a great shorthand for people to just in the data community, just understand that we get data out and ETL gets data in. I see. It's really free up the time of the data engineers so they can focus more on higher business impact yeah. initiatives, like working on business logic. Right. So like basically like a data engineer, what is most valuable use of their time is data modeling mm-hmm. and like building infrastructure internally. A data engineer is like a pretty high impact job. And mm-hmm. for them to be spending time building integrations is actually not the best use of their time. And I think that's why like a lot of them are very excited about using high touch because it gives them an opportunity to work on data modeling, which is really like the core function. Yeah, thanks for sharing the context and capabilities that HighTouch provided to solve some of these you know, tedious work, but potentially probably already is very high impact tasks and responsibilities that these data engineers have to face on their day-to-day job. So in addition to the main uh, product, I believe that you guys also have your second product. And this one is primarily used by some of the larger B2C customer. So this one allows marketing teams to view audience and features on top of existing data models. So yeah, can you provide like a potential simple use cases of how a marketer can use this product? Yeah, so this product is called Hydrogen Audiences and it's really a UI for marketers to access data without having to know SQL. So Hydrogen started as a SQL product meant for more technical users like data engineers to turn SQL queries into data pipelines, right? And that was like the very simple product. Over time, as we started talking to more and more customers, they said, hey, I'd love to use your product, but I don't know SQL. How can I use your product? And so we built the second interface. And this is actually, it was always part of the plan. We actually launched something like this early last year and turned it off because we found that like data users weren't excited about it. But now we rebuilt it from the ground up 
for marketers. And the use case is really like a marketer being able to make filters on top of existing data models. So you might have like a user's model or a purchase's model in your data warehouse. A data team might like basically say like, okay, here's the two models that you want. Use these to get your data. But a marketing team now needs to do like a lot of filters on top of these models, right? Like you might want to say, give me all users in the last 30 days that added a product to cart and then did not purchase the product within one day. And then with those users, give me the SKU of the product that they added to cart so I can market them the same exact product. And you want to pull this as a table and then you want to sync this to Facebook ads. So then Facebook can run an ad on all of these users exactly when they start like dropping off of your abandoned cart campaign and then like exactly with the product that they like viewed but did not buy. So that's the kind of campaign that you can run in high touch in under five minutes, which usually a marketer, marketing team would have to go to a data team. They have to say, hey, can you give me this data set? Can you export it as a CSV? And then I'll upload it to Facebook and run the campaign and I'll re-upload it to Facebook literally every week over and over in order to keep running this campaign. Like that's the kind of campaign that you can automate and not only automate, but like experiment with and run autonomously as a marketer. You can run campaigns like user signed up for app, but did not download app or like user downloaded app, but did not make account user made account, but did not sign into app. Like all these like different funnel queries you can run. You can run queries on like, give me all users in SF, give me all users in like a certain company account or a certain workspace. So let's say like Apple is a customer of mine. I can say like, give me all users that are part of the company, Apple that logged in within the last 10 days. And then I send them an email saying like, Hey, like you're our power user. Can you fill out the survey? to give us more feedback on our app. So like all these campaigns like are literally like weeks of work for someone to run. And now they can be run independently without help from engineering. And they can be run like very, very quickly. So it allows marketing teams primarily, but also like other teams in the company that want access to data to access it in a self-serve way. And then not only access it, but take action on it by sending emails or sending ads or like doing marketing operations on that data. Yeah, thanks for sharing that and providing a really concrete kind of motivation on how this product can enable the workflow of these marketers to become more efficient. So I believe that like, this strategy of high-touch product development is to closely integrate with a variety of other tools slash platform within the data tooling ecosystem. For instance, like you know, recently, high-touch integrate and collaborate with tools like DBT and Fivetran. So, I mean, taking a look at a broader picture, how do you see you know, this concept of reverse ETL? fit within the quickly evolving modern data stack? Yeah, so I mean, reverse ETL is like the last remaining step of the modern data stack. I think it's like almost like last mile delivery of data in some ways. ETL is pretty solved for Fivetran and Stitch do a really good job of that. And that's getting data in. DBT is a really good tool for transforming data and maintaining data models in the data warehouse. And so the last remaining thing really for the modern data stack is getting that data back out and into the tools that are operational and like where business users live. And that's where like we are and that's where like we think we can provide the most value. So it really is like a way of completing the modern data stack and providing the full feedback loop because now that you have that data back in your operational tools, it, it gives you a full 360 degree loop where now that data can be brought via Fivetran back into the warehouse again and so now you have a continuous loop of like, as the data changes, it's brought into the data warehouse and then brought back into the tool of choice and then brought back into the data warehouse. So like the beauty here is that like the data warehouse was always like the bottom most or right most like icon in a diagram. So right. it's always where the data ended. And after that, there was nothing else. There was no like arrow out of the data warehouse is always in. And it was like the final result. 
And yeah. so now we're like living in a world where it's actually in the middle of a diagram and feedback looping back into all the tools and then their feedback looping back into the data warehouse. So that's pretty exciting. Um, I think a lot of data engineers get excited about this. And so do we, because it's a completely different framework for thinking about how a data team sits within a company. So that way, like instead of the data team post-processing data, the data team is actually sitting directly in operational workflows. Yeah, thanks for providing that kind of visual paradigm and very excited to see how you know, this best practice is also being invented and adopted to fit this new workflow data warehouse as a service mm-hmm. for the rest of the other functions. You have written previously that the real purpose of PyTouch is data activation as a whole. As a result, there will be upcoming features that Mexico queries more and more powerful, more connections with more real-time data sources and destination, as well as higher flexibility with data transfer within customer workflows. So uh, how does your team prioritize the product roadmap given the high number of customer requests? Yeah, so we're, we're lucky that like our engineers are like very like flexible at like changing tasks and like also like very fast shipping integrations. So in the last, call it like eight months, we've shipped almost 60 integrations, which means we're shipping like almost like one or two per week. And like we have engineers dedicated to building integrations on our platform team. And the cool thing is that like each integration is almost like a new customer use case or a new product within high touch. Like we're not really constraining ourselves to like integrations having to follow a reverse ETL paradigm. Some integrations pipe events, some integrations create like messages in a tool or like create tasks in a tool. And so like each integration is kind of new and like unique in its own way. So it's kind of like a fun team to work on where like the purpose is to build products within high touch. And the way we manage that pace is we just kind of have an expectation that like We'll ship integrations quickly. We'll improve them over time and make them like more, add more and more use cases over time. And that if the if a customer comes up who needs an integration in order to onboard, then like we'll solve for that within a week. So like most companies, like apparently like um, average life cycle of like creating a new product feature or integration might be like a few months. But like for us, like we're a pretty early stage startup and we every single customer counts, right? Yeah. So like our engineers are pretty motivated by business impact. And they're pretty excited about shipping an integration that'll help close a customer. Yeah, it seems like you guys really have a very high velocity moving and very fast execution speed to meet all these demands. Yeah, it's, I think we all have fun with it. Like the engineers really enjoy, and we really enjoy like just shipping things quickly. And I think like that's kind of why like we only like really hire like some of the best engineers because we need to be, like, we need to have some guarantee that the quality is like good, that they don't need managing and that kind of stuff. So like, we're really proud of the team that we've built. Like if you were to come like see our culture, like you think it would kind of show through how like excited people are and like how much they're focused on the impact that they make. See, that kind of lends itself very well to my next set of questions. So uh, let's take off your data hat and put on your father hat. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any early-stage startup father. What valuable lesson that you have learned to attract the right people who are First, uh, excited about high touch mission to democratize access to data, and second, also fit with high touch cultural values. I've realized two things: people should not be hiring employees based on skill set. There's tons of people with a skill set out there that like might be down to join your company, but like the two things that you like are really difficult to calibrate for in an interview, but probably matter the most are how much care they take in their work and like how much they want to grow. So for example, like a lot of engineers at high touch, even if they only have like three years or four years of work experience, they're growing like crazy. Um, They're already becoming managers. They're already becoming tech leads. And like they're taking on an insane amount of responsibility within the company. 
And the reason for that is because they just really care about their work. They really enjoy it. They have a passion and like the amount of detail orientation and like care they take when helping customers, it just shines and you can tell. So like, I think like the number one thing, like people at high touch do, whether it's engineers, customer success, sales, marketing, is they care about how happy customers are and like how satisfied customers are. So like pretty much everything flows from that, right? If you care about the end customer and you really want to do, like give them the best experience possible, you're going to focus on quality. You're going to think forward about architecture. You're going to think about like, like how helpful am I to this person? How can I unblock them? And like, that's how you're going to make decisions. So it's not just the engineering team, but like even like, for example, the sales team, they'll unblock customers all the time by saying, you know, like, sure, I'll extend your free trial. Or you know what? Like this integration doesn't exist, but we'll make sure it happens within the next few days and just work with us on like these details and help us figure out how to architect the integration. It just feels like everyone is really like on the same team of helping customers and like they're not really focused on like ego or like helping themselves or like climbing a corporate ladder or like proving that they're right. Um, yeah. It's more like what can we gather from customer feedback that helps us improve as a team as a whole. I see yeah. how much care that they put on their work and how much they can learn. Right. So it's more yeah. commitment to craftsmanship and it's a desire to adopt a growth mindset. Right. Mm-hmm. Now talking about like customers obsession, right? So finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. What's some of the challenges that your team have to overcome in order to find some of the early design partners slash like our customers across the different marketing sales and customer success use cases? Yeah. So some of those I already mentioned, like during like the whole story about the pivots. I think like each customer wants a different thing, right? So like you have to get really good at recognizing patterns between like, okay, all my early stage customers are saying this, but all my enterprise customers are saying this. So like, it's not that one person is right or wrong. It's that they're right for themselves. And everyone generally is like correct for their market segment or their vertical or their type of company. And then the second is like, each company has a very different people structure. So like the data team might be a completely separate team that serves the whole company. It might be embedded in marketing. It might be embedded in sales. Um, there's all these different like people problems or like people structures that influence how a company makes decisions and how they think about reverse ETL. And so like you also have to like figure out those patterns and think about like, oh, okay, like this data engineer, the reason they're so interested is because they actually serve three teams and they don't have time to build integrations. Or this data engineer was not interested because they're actually only serving marketing and marketing has already solved like most of their problems in the company via internal ETLs. So like kind of like figuring out which advice to take and which advice not to take is really important. And so like having enough design partners to get that feedback and draw those patterns helps a lot. Mm-hmm. And then like for us, like one of the big ones was like figuring out who to sell to. Like originally we actually tried to sell to marketing teams and it didn't work because marketers had a lot of trouble figuring, understanding like why they should buy our product versus any other product in the market because they didn't really care about the data warehouse or understand like why the data warehouse is the most important thing for high touch. Whereas when we talked to data users, they were like, yep, this totally makes sense. You don't even have to convince me. I totally believe in the data warehouse. In fact, I've been trying to get people to use the data warehouse in this way for a very long time. And now you've given me a really good opportunity to do so. So like learning that we shouldn't sell to marketers and we should sell to data folks was like the pivotal moment in our business that actually made it start taking off and like helped us find product market fit. But like product market fit, like we had the same exact product, right? Like the product didn't change. It's just that like the market that we were going after was marketers and if we went after data people with the exact same product there was product market fit it was just a different persona almost like these data teams become internal champion exactly of job product within the respective organization and kind of spread adoption right just like 
exactly and they can help it grow among like the sales marketing and customer success teams because they kind of work with everyone in the company and they're over time becoming like the focal point for like i need data or i need analytics or i need insight in my company can you help me and because they've become the focal point like they kind of know like most of the problems throughout the company gotcha another topic that i want to touch on is pricing mm-hmm. so based on what is on the website high touch price by destination you know, to reflect the value that customer get from using the product and helping them predict costs over time. How did your team set it on this pricing model? Yeah, so we actually used to do a very different pricing model based on volume, and it didn't make any sense. Like, if you think about it, most users can't really calculate how much volume they're going to do because they haven't turned on the product yet, right? So like a lot of like SaaS tools in the market have this problem where they price based on volume and that allows customers to like grow and like pay more over time. But... A, customers hate it because now they're going to have to pay more and more as their business grows. And B, they just have no idea how much they're supposed to pay because you don't know how many volume, how much, how much data you're going to send. Mm-hmm. Like I know I have, let's say like 300 million rows of data in my database and that's way too much, right? So like I need to know how much data I'm going to send via high touch. Maybe it's like 2 million or 3 million, but I have no clue. I can't calculate that or like think about it first principles. Mm-hmm. So it's too confusing. And um, customers just didn't like it because it was like, they were basically getting penalized for growing their business. And so we switched over to like, well, what we did is we actually interviewed like 10 customers and like five prospective customers and asked them like, okay, like here's some pricing model ideas. What do you want? And what do you suggest is like the best that aligns with value? And almost every single one of them landed on, we want to be priced per destination. Like we think that each use case in high touch is a destination in high touch. And we really do think of it that way that like, if I enable Salesforce, I'll enable the sales team. If I enable Zendesk, I'll enable the support team. Um, and so on. So th- that's why we said like, let's do destinations, but let's tier it. So instead of doing like a paper use where like Salesforce is $6,000, gain side is $6,000 and so on. We said like, let's do like a tiered method where the first integration is free for life, unlimited usage. And then number two and three are bucketed. So together for those you pay, I think it's like what, like $4,000 a year, super cheap for two more integrations. So now you have three. And then number four and five are also bucketed. And that way it's like, you don't have to make a decision like every single time you use destination. You just have to make a decision upfront about like how many approximately you want to use. Yep. So you're like, yep, I have three use cases in my company. I'm just going to pay upfront $350 a month. And then boom, I have access to three destinations and I can use those however I want. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for detailing on, on these different tiers and buckets that being taught over. Now, as your team grows and expand with new highs later this year, what are some of the go-to-market initiatives? that you personally most excited about for the upcoming few months? Yeah, so we're really um, focused on building out like our marketing and evangelism function. We've always grown in an inbound way, like via product-led growth. Like Mm -hmm. we actually haven't done any outbound sales and we don't really plan to. And it's kind of fun. Like we get to basically like talk about our product, talk about our use cases, talk about our customers and like basically launch different things, like whether they're like tutorials or um, different products within high touch, different use cases within high touch. And use those as a way of telling more and more customers about high touch. So we used to market primarily to data teams. Now we also market to RevOps. And soon we're going to start marketing to marketers with our new audience's product. And so we basically get to do these types of marketing campaigns that generate inbound and then convert that inbound into sales. So most of our like go-to-market initiatives are that kind of like content-driven, community-driven, evangelism-driven inbound initiative. Mm-hmm. And then we're also really excited about partnerships. So we already partner really closely with Fivetran and DBT. 
which are like the other two components of the modern data stack. And like, we love working with them on co-marketing and co-selling because a lot of customers do ask like the three of us for each other. And they'll be like, oh, like, but first I need to get data in and we'll say, great, use Fivetran. Or they'll use Fivetran and they'll say, now I need to get data out and Fivetran will say, great, use Hightouch. So that's been like really, really um, helpful in our go-to-market. And we're looking to expand our like relationships with partners with more partners. So for example, working with HubSpot or Iterable or Braze or like other tools that we integrate with, there's really strong value props on both sides uh, as we integrate with more and more tools. And since we integrate with 60 tools, like we can have upwards of 60 partners that we work with um, that all benefit from Hightouch being an easy way to onboard onto those platforms. Um, like the value prop to them is like, my user wants to use HubSpot. It's going to take them a couple of weeks or maybe a month to onboard because they need to get all the data in. But if they have high touch, they can just get the data in in like an hour. The friction of onboarding reduces dramatically for any SaaS tool that you use, which is a huge value add for them. And then a huge value add for us because we get new users. I see. So content, community, and partnership. Yep. Talk about the three main drivers of engagement that you are totally. looking forward. This might be a side note question. I'm just curious for any product electro company, at what point do you think it makes sense for them to start doing top-down enterprise sales? In addition to the moment. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. It's more like a focus. So we could totally do top-down sales right now, but the question is how quickly would we grow? And like we're not in the business of growing linearly. I think if we did top-down sales, we'd have to hire a bunch of people to do outbound. They might bring in like five companies a month. And so if you have like 10 people, maybe they bring in 50 companies a month and then you sell those 50 companies, right? Like I think I think it's gonna be a pretty slow and linear way to grow, where you pretty much just like spend dollars, get customers, and they come and then you you sell them. We are much more interested in growing like exponentially and growing through inbound. Customers that come inbound have much higher intent, which is just like the natural way of things. And you can use marketing as a lever to grow much more quickly. So we would probably do enterprise sales and more top-down sales as we have like more products and like more enterprise features that Mm -hmm. are like suited for enterprise. But even for enterprise, we'd much rather grow in an inbound way, in a bottoms-up way, where we just market to those companies. We get a couple users to come in and try our product. They set up some syncs, and now we can sell to the larger company because the friction of selling when they're already using the product is like a hundred times less than when they're not using the product. So we just don't have any intentions of doing it anytime soon. I think the right question to ask is like, when should you do it, and like, is it the right focus for now? And I think it's just a bad focus for now. Yeah, I suppose that part that you mentioned when product ready with more enterprise great features, you can start looking to look at the sales function. And there's a yeah. page on Hightouch website that emphasized on security, which I definitely believe is like a core requirement for enterprise, mm-hmm. big account customer, right? So kind of circling back to fundraising and venture, Hightouch raised both the seed round and the series A round this year, backed by top tier firms like Amplify Partners, being Capital Ventures, Alpha Capital, as well as the variety of well-known angels, what fundraising advice would you give for data founders who are seeking the right investors for the startups? Yeah, basically, I would find someone who like understands your space and like believes in your go-to-market for that space. So, for example, like the reason we really like working with Amplify and Bain is because they're not telling us to like go out and make a bunch of revenue. They're really letting us focus on like marketing and like market leadership and like inbound rather than revenue growth and just making money. And they're focused on the long-term, right? Like for us, it's like, if we win this market, then we will succeed long-term as a business. And we're only focused on how to win the market. So for example, like what we care about right now is working with as many customers as possible, learning from their use cases as quickly as possible, and then building product as fast as possible. 
And like how often do you meet a VC that's focused on those things? It's not very often. You usually meet VCs that are thinking about like, okay, how can you grow revenue from like a few million dollars to like $10 million? And that's like their goal, right? But that's not necessarily the right term, right long-term goal because you might succeed in short-term revenue, but you won't win the market long-term. And so I think like finding those investors that are really aligned with how you want to run your business is probably like most important. If your question was more on like how to like raise the round itself, I think it's like generally like people only meet investors through warm intros. And that's honestly like the really sad nature of the industry. But a good way to do that is to find a few angel investors that believe in you, get instructions through them, and then find a few founders that are doing different things than you, but have already like raised before and then get instructions through them. Because most founders like series A, series B stage, like already know most of the VCs in the Valley and they'll be able to introduce you. Founders are like inherently believers, right? So like they like to believe in other founders and they like to like kind of like be optimistic. Mm -hmm. Um, So like they're going to be very happy to help. I think that's like the easiest way to meet VCs. Quick clarification is we actually raised our seed like in 2019 when we actually raised our series A at the end of 2020. So we're a little bit late to announcing both of those two rounds, but like we're pretty like well on our way to like in 2020, when we raised our Series A, we were about like five people and now we're 22 people and still growing very quickly from there. So like, I'm, I, I think we're very fortunate to have raised it in 2020 because it allowed us to grow much more quickly this year and invest more heavily this year in our team. Yeah, I see. Thanks for sharing those practices and um, that focus on like people who are investors who like ally with the company's mission. And, you know, I think in your case really go slow and be sustainable rather than kind of burn fast and, and get short-term gains, but without reaching that long-term success, right? And a lot of these angels, uh, I think like previous founders and CEO, so I, I suppose they've already had that experience of being in a founder and operator. And I think it can, you know, give you a lot of advice on how to run this company and being a champion for you and introducing to the other people in the network. So it seems like that's been a great success for High Touch. Finally, High Touch was selected a few months ago as a Forbes Cloud 100 Rising Star by Investment Venture, Forbes, and Salesforce Ventures. What does this recognition mean to you and the rest of the Hatash team? Yeah, for us, I mean, it came out of nowhere. We were really surprised and like super like grateful to be recognized so early on in our life cycle. Like, I feel like that list is like usually for companies that are later stage. And so was like, it made us really proud to see our recognition. Um, but what it means to us is kind of recognition that two things. One, that this problem is real, uh, that every single company in the world pretty much has this problem, which is that they need data in their operational tools. And two, that like the market has now decided that reverse ETL is the right solution to that problem. So like, it's pretty awesome to have a business that like everyone recognizes the problem is very widespread and that they basically fundamentally believe that your solution is the right solution to it. Because then past that, it's just execution. It's like, can we build a good product? Can we do like really good marketing? Can we sell this really well? And can we win the market? But like what we're doing is like the right thing to do effectively is what it feels like. And then it also feels like a recognition that like, like both B2C and B2B companies and enterprises and startups will all have this use case for reverse ETL. It, it just definitely like shows you that like the market size is pretty big and that like kind of like the world is our oyster now. We, when we started this, we were like, hmm, maybe this is going to be just an internal ETL tool. Maybe this is just going to be a marketing tool. Like maybe the use cases are not going to be so widespread. But over the next like eight months, we actually learned from our users that they want to use high touch in tons of different ways and that it's going to be pretty horizontal, serving many different teams and eventually become like a product for non-SQL users as well. So like that's what keeps us motivated and it makes us have fun because we're not like constrained into doing like one thing within a company. 
we can technically power like hundreds or thousands of different use cases in a company. And so it's as if we're like finding new use cases and like finding like new fun things to work on every single day. Yeah, that's a great mental space to be in. Cash is just a small conversation. I want to move into the final closing segment. And we can ask you three rapid fire question, and then you can give the quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data community whose work you admire. Definitely like DBT. I respect what they're doing. And I think they're doing like a really amazing job. I would say like there's a company called Shipyard that is basically making it easy for anyone to build a like modern data stack out of the box. Um, like you just click a few times and then they'll set up your infrastructure for you, which I think is really awesome. And then Big Time Data is a kind of a like data consulting firm that helps companies get started with a, with a data stack. And they're like just really awesome to work with. Um, we have a few customers that work with Big Time Data and like Big Time Data sets up high touch on their behalf. They're truly like, I think going to pioneer like how people think about data and they're like really good at best practices and helping us like think through our product and how to make it better. So we're like very grateful that like in many of our customers, like they're actually our end user. Number two, what is one book that you could recommend for people to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset? I don't have that many books I've read, but the hard thing about hard things is great book by Ben Horowitz and really just like shows you like A, how hard it will be. And then like B, like what is important when starting a company. So definitely recommend that. And then finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Hmm. I would say like probably just something funny, like it's not data, it's data. Or it's like something more of like fun because I think like data people generally on Twitter are like semi-serious and they talk about data a lot. But like in the end of the day, like data practitioners have lives outside of work too. I kind of like want to make data Twitter more fun. I see. Yeah, I think I think that's great way to end our conversation. So Kashish, I really enjoy chatting with you this morning, learn about your earlier interest in math, science, and robotics, your journey at UPenn, working on a variety of internships, and then become interested in startups, your current journey with high touch solving interesting problem in operational analytics reverse etl and with the mission of activation data throughout the workflow and make the job of data engineers easier and a lot of interesting insights related to the product engineering hiring fundraising customer success and pricing and be sure to include everything in the show notes so our listeners can have a chance to take a look learn more about what high touch is doing and reach out if they're interested in learning about the product, the company, and some of the interesting problems that your team's solving to making the life of their teams easier. So yeah, gosh, I really enjoy our conversation and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, James. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.